While he was saying these things to them, behold, a ruler came in and knelt before him, saying, My daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her, and she will live. And Jesus rose and followed him with his disciples. And behold, a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for twelve years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. For she said to herself, If I only touch his garment, I will be made well. Jesus turned and seeing her, he said, Take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. And instantly the woman was made well. And when Jesus came to the ruler's house and saw the flute players and the crowd making a commotion, he said, Go away, for the girl is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But when the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took her by the hand, and the girl arose, and the report of this went through all that district. And as Jesus passed on from there, two blind men followed him, crying aloud, Have mercy on us, son of David. When he entered the house, the blind men came to him, and Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? They said to him, Yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes, saying, According to your faith, be it done to you. And their eyes were opened, and Jesus sternly warned them, See that no one knows about it. But they went away and spread his fame through all that district. As they were going away, behold, a demon-oppressed man who was mute was brought to him. And when the demon had been cast out, the mute man spoke, and the crowds marveled, saying, Never was anything like this seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said, He casts out demons by the prince of demons. This is the word of the Lord. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you, Jesus, for coming and just doing um, amazing, amazing things while you're here on earth. And, of course, um, we give you praise and glory for just, of course, salvation, the work on the cross that you did for us. But just seeing how you walked among us and you were so loving and giving and so gracious and amazing, um, I just pray, Lord, that you would... Uh, by your spirit, give us the grace and the power to imitate you in this life. So we give you all the praise and us ask, Lord, that you would bless your word this morning, bless Mike as he speaks, and may we just all um, be amazed at you. Amen. Amen. You guys be seated. Thanks, John. Good morning, family. How are we? Good, good. Good to get to gather with you all. Uh, if you're a guest here with us, welcome to Taproot. My name is Mike. Uh, one of the pastors here in Tabert Church, and I get to preach today, and uh, obviously we're continuing our way here through the Gospel of Matthew, so um, this is good. I just, I want to note that we made it through two chapters in a matter of four weeks. Yeah. And I, yeah, I was counting, I was counting last night, and like potentially, doubtfully, but potentially, we could wrap Matthew up in like 30 sermons but doubtfully, <laughs> so just saying. Um, yeah, we exist to know Jesus and make him known, and man, this text just gets to the heart of that uh, in so many ways, and so um, I'm, just gonna, I'm just gonna jump right in here for us this morning. So in Matthew chapter eight and nine, uh, which is, of course, the picture of Jesus coming down off of the mountain, uh, preaching the Sermon on the Mount, and the, the big 
picture we're intended to see there is uh, that Jesus comes off of the mountain, he goes down into the valley, and he's with and among the people. And so, in essence, what we see Jesus doing, uh, in particular in Matthew 8 and 9, is he's, he's, just, he's living out the Sermon on the Mount. He is doing uh, what he taught his disciples to do, uh, and he's doing himself what he taught and uh, furthermore, we see that, that Jesus is, is fulfilling what this preaching the gospel of the kingdom looks like, right? that, that for Jesus to, to preach the gospel of the kingdom wasn't just mere words, it was coupled with actions, and so we see Jesus doing these things, and in particular, we see Jesus uh, going to the outsiders, uh, to the outcasts, to those who were and are rejected. Uh, we see Jesus befriending sinners. Uh, we saw that last week as Jesus called Matthew, the tax collector, to himself. And so not only does Jesus befriend sinners, but uh, really he befriends the worst of the worst. Uh, he, he befriends like the lowest of the lowest and the outcast of the outcast. It's, it's really hard. I was, I was talking with Abby this morning on the way in, and one of the struggles that I personally am having with the Gospel of Matthew is um, there's just so much cultural difference, right? Like what Matthew's doing would have shocked people. Like they, they would have heard, or they would have heard this Gospel read they would have seen the things that Jesus were doing, and, and they wouldn't have just like nonchalantly gone about their day. Like they would have been startled. They would have been shocked. They would have been stopped in their tracks. Like I don't know what that looks like for you. I'm not sure what shocks you. I'm not sure what shocks us. Uh, I think we, we live in a world that doesn't get shocked very easily. Um, but whatever it is, like, this is, this is what's going on. And so in Matthew 8 and 9, we've seen a number of miracles, um, about 10 of them, including the ones that we see in our text this morning. And what's interesting about what Matthew does is Matthew goes through great pains to, to put the emphasis on Jesus, which all the gospel writers do, of course. But, but Matthew, what he does, as we've talked about the last couple of weeks, is he leaves out a lot of the details that Mark gives us, or even that, that Luke gives us. And so Matthew cuts out a lot of the conversation, and he, he focuses in specifically on the words of Jesus and the actions of Jesus. Uh, but that's actually something that, that kind of transitions this, this morning in our text. What Matthew actually wants us to see this morning is, uh, is the response of the people. And so more than just seeing what Jesus is doing and how Jesus is responding to the crowds around him, Matthew's emphasis in our text today is on the response of the people. And this is really, uh, this is really a transition. Uh, so from Matthew 9 to, to Matthew 10 is a transition point for us uh, where Jesus is about to, to go out on mission, essentially. He's about to send his disciples out on mission. Uh, but this, this is, so this is the transi transition text for us. Um, and the hope is, in all of this, that there would be a response of marveling at Jesus. And so here's, here's the main idea that we're getting at this morning. It's, it's this. There is nobody like Jesus. How will we respond to him? There's nobody like Jesus, and so how are we going to respond to him? And so with that, we got three points that we're going to work through. And, and really, we're just going to work through each of these paragraphs and I'm just going to kind of give some uh, context for us. And then what we're going to do is we're just going to circle back around through them um, and then kind of make some application points at the end. So uh, number one, 
we see this. Jesus brings the dead to life. Jesus brings the dead to life. So look at verse 18. We're going to just read this again. While he was saying these things to them, behold, a ruler came in and knelt before him, saying, my daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her and she will live. And Jesus rose and followed him with his disciples. And behold, a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for 12 years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. For she said to herself, if I only touch his garment, I will be made well. Jesus turned and seeing her, he said, take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. And instantly the woman was made well. And when Jesus came to the ruler's house and saw the flute players and the crowd making a commotion, he said, go away, for the girl is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But when the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took her by the hand, and the girl arose. And the report of this went through all that district. So even, even as I was reading through the text, I was like, man, it's just so easy to read through this. And just be like, oh, dead person raised to life. This person bleeding for years and years and years, just done, healed. These, these words, this, this, is, this is shocking what Jesus does. So let's, let's look at this. Jesus has just finished teaching on the new reality that he's bringing into the world, right? So uh, we ended last week kind of looking at uh, Jesus' interaction with John's disciples. And their big question is like, why do your disciples not fast? Our disciples fast like a lot. Uh, often we do a really good job at this whole religion thing. And Jesus is like, well, I'm here, and since I'm here, we're going to party, basically. Like Jesus, Jesus is the presence of joy. Right? Uh, I, I heard it put this way. I, you know, I did a little bit more research this last week. And kind of imagine, imagine going to a wedding, right? Because this is the language Jesus uses, is, is bridegroom wedding language. Uh, and imagine their weddings are, are a, a week long. So imagine going to a wedding and being the person who says, oh, no, I'm, I'm fasting. No one does that. And, and so this is what Jesus is getting at. He's wanting us to see, like, he is this presence of joy. He is this entrance of something entirely new into the world, and it doesn't fit with the old. So he's replacing the new with the old, and this is what he now begins to show us. And so Matthew uh, strategically places this teaching right here, and because what Jesus has taught now gets lived out. Jesus wants us to see just how new uh, he is, or what he's bringing into the world is different than what formerly was with the old covenant. And so Jesus is first approached by a ruler. Okay, so this, this ruler uh, is, what, we know that this is Jairus. This is what the Gospel of Mark tells us. This is Jairus, uh, who is a ruler of the synagogue. And so Jairus uh, would have been someone who was important in society, uh, and he bursts in with a really outrageous request. He, he if you can imagine Jesus is teaching on this whole new wine, wineskins, this whole thing, and then as he's teaching, he gets interrupted. Jairus bursts in, drops to his knees, and says, my daughter is dead. My daughter's dead. Then he adds a, a but to that. But you can heal her, in essence, is what he says. And so, really, we, we ought to be, first and foremost, just like, shocked at Jairus's faith. Like, who is Jesus, and, and what has Jesus done, and who of us is ever able to say, so-and-so is dead, but? 
Like normally death isn't followed with a, a but, it's just that's the end. But Jairus has some expectation of Jesus. And, and I, I imagine Jairus as, as a synagogue leader, he's a man who's saturated in scripture. He's saturated in the Old Testament story. He, he knows Yahweh. He knows the power of his God. And, and he's making these connections with who Jesus is. And so he boldly goes to Jesus with this incredible faith, saying, if, if you'll just come and lay your hands on her, she'll, she'll, she'll rise. And what's interesting about this is that it actually provokes a response in Jesus. Right, this is the first time that we actually see this. Notice what Jesus does. He says, my daughter has died. Jairus says, my daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her and she'll live. And Jesus rose and followed him with his disciples. Up until this point, who's, who's, who's been doing the following? Jesus' disciples, right? And it's his disciples who are following him. And so there's just, there's something interesting, something extraordinary that's going on here in the faith of Jairus to, to prompt Jesus to stop his teaching, to get up, to get his disciples and to say, we're going to follow this guy. And so Jesus and his disciples follow Jairus. And, and, and as they're going, we then see this interruption, right? And this woman comes up and she touches Jesus. And so she's been, says so she has a discharge of blood for 12 years. She comes up behind Jesus and touches the fringe of his garment. Now this is you know, a lot of us are like, well, what do we, what do, we do with this, right? Uh, if, you, if you would like to go do some more research, uh, go read Leviticus. <laughs> uh, specifically, Leviticus 15 gets at some of this. If you, if you go do that, I would encourage you to have a good commentary with you, though, because <laughs> uh, even just reading Leviticus, you'll still wind up just scratching your head a little bit uh, in regards to what's going on here. But suffice it to say, there are purity laws um, around the issue of a discharge of blood. And so this woman has been suffering for years, 12 years. Uh, Mark tells us that not only has she been suffering for all these years, she's also spent all of her money on doctors, physicians. And none of the doctors could figure out what was going on. And so uh, she's put her whole life into this, uh, and yet she's continued to suffer. And, and what we know, what's, what's clear from the Levitical law is that she was considered to be unclean. She couldn't be in the presence of any people. She was, she was um, I don't want to say the epitome of a social outcast, but she was really close. Right? Uh, we have like tax collector and then this, this woman, in essence. And, and so she's on the margins of society, and, and so what she does is at great risk to herself. And, and in the eyes of all the people who are around her, Mark tells us that there's a huge crowd. And she pushes through the crowd, and she has what some commentators reference as this sort of superstitious faith, where she thinks to herself, if only I touch the fringe of his garment. Right? Uh, uh, Jewish men uh, would wear uh, these long robes that would have four tassels on them. Numbers, I think it's Numbers 15 uh, that talks about this. And uh, they represented, in essence, remembering. It was intended to cause him to remember what God had done. And it was also the mark of, of a holy man. 
And so the perspective is this, of this woman is if I only go and touch the fringe of his garment, I will be made well. And so she has this incredible, bold faith where she's, she's willing to risk everything, everything. And Jesus, so, that, so she touches the garment, she's healed. Mark gives us more details that, that Matthew doesn't give us here. But then, then they just continue on their way. And then Jesus arrives at Jairus' home, and the girl is dead. Right? So um, look there again at verse 20, or sorry, 23. And when Jesus came to the ruler's house and saw the flute players and the crowd making a commotion, he said, go away, for the girl is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. Now here, here's, here's what's happening here. They arrive at Jairus' home, and she's dead, and here's how we know that she's dead. There's professional mourners who are on the scene. And so in, in Israel, what would happen when, when someone died is they would, they would, they would hire people. They would hire, in particular, they would hire women. And the, the responsibility of these women was to lead the people in lament. It, it was to lead them in grief. And it was, it was also a way in which the time of death was specifically marked. So when Jesus shows up on, on the scene, and we'll talk a little bit later about the, his comment in regards to uh, her not being dead but sleeping. But what he says to them, would have, it would have been offensive. I mean, imagine, if, um, imagine a medical professional today pronouncing someone dead, and then one of us just walks in and says, oh, they're, they're not dead, they're sleeping. We would be laughed at, right? Because the people who were skilled to know, oh, this is death, had pronounced, yes, this is death. And so I think that we're supposed to see this emphasized reality, right? that actually this girl wasn't merely sleeping. Every indicator that could show that she was dead was there. And yet Jesus shows up and takes her by the hand, and she's brought back to life. Now, what's interesting about this is this, is that, um, well, there's a lot that's interesting about it. <laughs> well, let, let's, let's start with this. We haven't, we haven't talked a lot about the miracles themselves, Actually, we've kind, of just, we've kind of just cruised through the miracles without even questioning whether or not miracles are real or not. Right? We're just, we, are, we are, as followers of Jesus in Taproot Church, uh, we are working with the assumption that these are real miracles, right? that Jesus is actually healing people, that lepers are cleansed, that, that paralytics are walking, that dead people are brought to life, right? And, and this is just an important, I think, reality for us to assume because why shouldn't we? we our, 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 faith, our faith is in a, a man who was crucified and then rose three days later from a grave and then ascended to his throne where he's now ruling and reigning as king. Like Our faith exists on this entire reality. And so we assume that these are just real things that are going on. And I, I want, what's important here is this, is that I don't want us to over-spiritualize these things. 
Because I think what can tend to happen is this, is, is we can say that Jesus comes and he, he brings the spiritually dead to life. Or Jesus comes and he brings the spiritually blind to sight. Or Jesus comes and he makes the spiritually mute able to speak. Which is true. But, but really what we're supposed to see is that, no, Jesus raises the dead to life. Jesus makes the blind see, and Jesus makes those who can't speak, speak. Not just in a spiritual sense, but in a real, physical, realistic reality. This is the kingdom of God coming into existence. And so let's not over-spiritualize things for the sake of our comfort, What I also want to point out about Jesus' miracles while we're talking about them is this, is that notice Jesus is never flashy. I think one of the reasons that we have become so quick to discredit any sort of miraculous um, is because we've seen the abuses of it, which, which, yeah, that's a, that's a, a very good reason, I think, to try to maybe discredit these things. Uh, man, I, I remember one time uh, when I was a youth pastor, uh, we took a group of kids down to L.A., and we took them down to, to Skid Row. So I don't know if any of you have ever ridden to Skid Row. It's like uh, dangerous, <laughs> sketchy. <laughs> uh, it's, it's, it's like the epitome of just uh, brokenness in front of you. And it was interesting. We, we were working with a particular uh, group, and they brought in a highly... Highly charismatic group, and and it, and that's all it was. It was just these. They were taking people out of wheelchairs and and trying to make them like stand up, like. But it was interesting because one of the kids was like, "Oh, I just saw that guy who just got out of the wheelchair walking a little bit ago." Like, so it was this just like this whole staged thing, right? uh, and it was and it was being put on in front of a crowd. So obviously, we look at those kinds of things. We're like, "Yeah, I'm not so sure how to how to deal with this." But what's interesting about how Jesus does it is notice he sends the people out. And, and the majority of Jesus' miracles are, are done, they're accomplished in front of small groups uh, that include primarily his disciples and the specific people who are being healed. And so Jesus isn't flashy about anything that he does here. Actually, he's really careful about everything that he does here. And he doesn't use his healing or any of these miracles to draw a crowd. Actually, Jesus works really hard to keep crowds away. But let's just, I want to point out some, some, some of the shocking components to this passage. And first, it's this. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all use this story. And they all use it in relatively the same way. And what we're intended to see is that it's this intersection of death and desperation that leads us to a willingness to do anything. Uh, it, it's interesting, actually, you have, in this, in this scene, you have, you have opposite ends of the spectrum. You have a, a ruler, a leader of the synagogue, who's, he's, he's elite in Jewish society. He would have been well-respected. He would have been automatically listened to. He would have been looked to for some sort of direction and teaching. And then you have this woman who's an outcast, 
ignored, thrown out, rejected in every way possible. And yet Jesus brings them together. And Jesus, Jesus shows zero partiality. And, and, and actually, I think what we're supposed to see is, is, is that like, this, is, this is the human experience. Like that at the end of the day, we're all desperate. And at the end of the day, we're all going to face death. Whether that be of a loved one or whether it be our own. Like this is the reality of human existence. And Matthew very clearly wants us to see that Jesus is the solution to this. He, he wants us to see that Jesus is our hope in this reality. The, these two people who are at separate ends of the social spectrum, yet both are desperate and in the face of death. And this is the leveling reality of human experience. Regardless of where we might try to place ourselves, we are all going to face this. So that's Jesus raising the dead and healing this woman. And like I said, we're going to circle back around to this in just a minute. But let's look at the second paragraph here. And what we see in this is just simple that Jesus enables the blind to see. So verse 27 as Jesus passed on from there, two blind men followed him and crying aloud, have mercy on us, son of David. When he entered the house, the blind men came to him and Jesus said to them, do you believe that I am able to do this? And they said to him, yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes saying, according to your faith, be it done to you. And their eyes were opened and Jesus sternly warned them, see that no one knows about it. But they went away and spread his fame through all that district. <laughs> So Jesus and his disciples now move on, and Matthew records for us the healing of these two blind men. Uh, and this particular scene is unique, and it's actually interesting. Uh, in Matthew 20, verse 30 through 34, we see, I'm going to read it, it's, there's a similar scene. And, oh, let's see. Many commentators, scholars believe that this is the same two men as Jesus heals back in, in Matthew chapter 9. Okay, uh, so, again, Matthew's not concerned about a chronological sequence of how things take place. And he, in, he inserts events to make specific points. Uh, so whether or not these are the same or not, there's, there's similarities. So really quick, let me just read this, Matthew 20 starting in verse 29. And as they went out of Jericho, a great crowd followed him. And behold, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside. And when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. It's the exact same thing that we see in Matthew 9. The crowd rebuked them, telling them to be silent, but they cried out all the more, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And stopping, Jesus called them and said, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Lord, let our eyes be opened and and Jesus, in pity, touched their eyes, and immediately they recovered their sight and followed him. So at any rate, there's, there's correlations that are obvious there. Uh, but what we need to see about this is that there's some uniqueness in how Matthew records this for us. And so, in particular, verse 27, I think, communicates a lot. And, and first, what it does is this, is um, 
these men are the first to declare Jesus to be the Messiah. This is a, a direct reference back to how Matthew started his gospel. Remember, the first thing that Matthew told us about who Jesus is is that he's the son of David. Matthew 1.1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. So these blind men are the first ones to recognize this. Now, again, not to over-spiritualize, but to absolutely recognize the irony that's being used. The blind men are the first ones to see who Jesus actually is. And I think that that's a reality that we're intended to see. Yeah. Uh, so they don't see, but they seem to see clearly. But this is, this is where it's interesting. The second thing that we see in verse 27 is that Jesus seems to ignore them. And this is the first time that this happens as well, because in all of Matthew 8 and 9, it seems that any time that someone has come up to Jesus and, and said, please do this thing for me, Jesus stops and does it. And so, what, but listen to what, how this works. As Jesus passed on from there, two blind men followed him, crying aloud, have mercy on us, son of David. Now, it stops there, and then eventually he gets to a house, but what we're intended to see is that he doesn't just stop. They're following him for some time. He continues to walk, and it, I mean, it seems, initially, it just seems kind of cruel that two blind men are trying to follow Jesus. And Jesus just keeps walking. Right? And so why? Why is, why is this happening? Right? Uh, well, one commentator, his name is Rodney Reeves. It's a cool name for a commentator. Uh, he says this. Uh, he says that he believes that these men were trying to flatter Jesus, which is also interesting. Um, and so it, the way that we can understand that is this, is that this was an honor and shame culture. And so the, the way that the people on the lower rung of society, so to speak, were able to uh, get a leg up or move up in society, the, the, the societal classes was if someone more honorable bestowed some sort of honor on them. And so what Reeves is communicating in his commentary is that this is exactly what these men were doing. They were maybe less than sincere in their communication of who Jesus was as the son of David and were more concerned about attaching themselves to Jesus as someone who was recognized as higher up than they were. And so because of that, then Jesus is hesitant to just stop and heal them. But now, it does get interesting because it goes on and says that when he entered the house, the blind men came in, so they continued to follow him. And Jesus says, do you believe that I am able to do this? They say, yes, Lord. He touches their eyes saying, according to your faith, be it done to you. So there is obviously some, some faith that's taking place. There is some recognition of who Jesus is. But, but then it gets confusing again because of what verse 29 does. Right? Because Jesus, notice, he sternly warns them. Okay? So in other words, Jesus isn't joking around. I think it's easy for us to, to kind of laugh at the disobedience of these two men or to kind of brush it aside and, and just kind of, you know, be like, well, what would you expect? And, and I guess we could ask that question, right? Like, if you were blind and you automatically had your sight restored, what would you do? 
There we go. Yeah, it's good. I, th- I thought you guys were there. We would tell people. Like, like that's, that's just news that we're going to spread. Um, so it's, it's, it's challenging to try to figure out what exactly is going on here. Uh, so perhaps they were sincere in their faith towards Jesus. Perhaps they were just trying to flatter Jesus to get what they wanted. Regardless, it doesn't change the fact that Jesus is very cautious about spreading who he is, which I think is interesting. Uh, and, and, there, and there is a lot that's going on here in regards to Jesus clearly seems to think that they don't fully understand who he is because he sternly warns them, do not go tell anyone. And, and he means it. Like, he actually doesn't want them to say anything, which, which just makes me wonder, too. Like, perhaps we should think about that when it comes to discipleship. Like, maybe we shouldn't always be so quick to say that people should go tell other people about Jesus because maybe in doing so, they're actually spreading a false Jesus. Like, I think it's easy to kind of spread this idea of a Jesus who, like, oh, well, he, you know, uh, Jesus loves me, and he just, whatever, warm, fuzzy, give you a hug, Jesus. When it's not the full picture of Jesus. And so Jesus wants a clear, full picture of who he is to be communicated. And so at this point in time, he tells these men not to say anything. But they don't listen. Again, we'll come back to that. Third, we see that Jesus enables the mute to speak. This this one's really simple, straightforward. Verse 32, as they were going away, behold, a demon-oppressed man who was mute was brought to him. When the demon had been cast out, the mute man spoke, and the crowds marveled, saying, never was anything like this seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said, he casts out demons by the prince of demons. So once again, we see Jesus interacting with a demon-oppressed man. This demon-oppressed man is brought to him. Uh, We will talk more specifically about this demon oppression thing in Matthew 12, okay? Uh, We've been kind of holding on to it for a little bit. But in Matthew 12, we'll get there. Uh, And what he does is he just heals the man and enables him to speak. But what's interesting, notice, though the man is able to speak, Matthew doesn't record any of his words. And this is what what clues us into what Matthew wants us to see. Uh, Because this this is kind of like the key verse. What Matthew highlights is what is said by the crowds and the Pharisees. And and so it's their responses that are noteworthy. It's their responses that Matthew wants us to grab onto in this particular portion of text. And so the crowds marvel, saying, never was anything like this seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said, he casts out demons by the prince of demons. So here's, here's, here's what's going on. Here's how Bruner puts this. He says, quote, in this chapter so far, Matthew has presented us with one, bold faith, two, touching faith, three, deathless faith, and four, pursuing faith. Now, Matthew pursues his readers and asks them, and your faith, are you like the simple people impressed by Jesus, or are you like the people's leaders distressed by him? In this miracle, it is we, the listeners, who, if mute or tongue-tied, are invited to speak up with a decision for Christ. 
And so here, here's the question that I want us to ask for the rest of our time. How will we respond to Jesus? How, how will we respond to Jesus? And in asking this, I'm not talking about a one time at some point in your life response to Jesus. What, what we need to ask at least for those of us who are followers of Jesus, is how are we responding to Jesus on a day-in and day-out basis? Because it's easy for us to just kind of one time, I responded, I responded to Jesus, but now I'm, I'm living my own whatever. But that's not what Jesus calls us to. Jesus calls us to a day-in, day-out, particular way of responding to him. Okay? And this is what I want us to work out. So here's, uh, um, here's what we see. First and foremost, Jesus is always going to provoke a response. Notice that you can't be indifferent to Jesus. We we proclaim him as risen from the dead. You can't be indifferent to that. Like that, you you have to make a decision. And, And it's either you have to believe it or I'm a little crazy, as are the rest of us. And so Jesus always provokes a response. And and it's usually one of two ends. It's usually elation and gladness or anger and madness. And I I think what's interesting is that even even as we are learning how to follow Jesus, this is going to be a reality that we experience. Guess what? Jesus makes me really angry sometimes. Like, one of my favorite things to tell people is Jesus is making me do this. Like... And it's sometimes really, really frustrating, right? But a response will always be prompted. Uh, the other night, was it, when did we go caroling? Thursday night? Yeah, so a group of us, about, there was, I don't know, there was like, there was around 40 adults and I think like 82 kids. Um, <laughs> that's the ratio. <laughs> we went caroling just around uh, this neighborhood and kind of back here and up there and it was, a really, it was a really great time. Uh, but what was interesting is just watching the responses that were prompted by people, or that, that, that people gave us, right? So we, we go and we knock on people's doors in the night, which is, you know, weird. Um, and then we just stand and wait for them to come to the door and we sing songs, which truth be told is also weird. Um, there is an uncomfortable feeling about doing that. But it was, it was loads of fun. But what was interesting is just watching the varied responses. So like our, our, the first two people that we went to, um, they, were, like, they were just really touched. Uh, they both said, like, you, one said, you made my entire week. The other one said, you made my entire month. Like they were just elated and, and just filled with joy that we would come sing a Christmas song to them and then give them a box of really delicious cookies. And so they were super blessed. Then, you know, then there was other people. We had one guy, uh, he answered the door. And there's two groups, so a bunch of different things happened. Um, one guy answered the door, stepped out, we're singing. And then halfway through, he just kind of like, you could tell he wasn't sure how to respond. And so he just closed the door and walked back inside. <laughs> and we just kept singing. And at the end of it, I was trying to figure out like, who is this more awkward for, us <laughs> or the guy who closed the door on the Christmas carolers? Like, come on, 
Who does that? I tried to, I knocked and tried to see if I could get him to answer again to hand him the cookies, but he didn't. Anyways, the cookies weren't there this morning. I assume he took them. <laughs> There's one other guy. We were going down the street, and he, uh, it, it was Thursday night football, so we could see TVs on. And this guy, he, he saw us coming, and he got up, and he ran to the other side of his house. <laughs> we watched it, and we knocked, and he did not answer. Um, another person, we, we started singing. He left. But his door was open, so he kept singing, and then we walked away down to the next house, and then he came running after us and tried to offer us money, which I think that's a thing that used to happen, like the kind of, this is my offering, please put it in the, and we were like, no, it's okay, we just wanted to, you know, we just wanted to sing you songs. Uh, the other group said that they had someone actually was brought to tears. Uh, There's just so much joy uh, that they experienced. I think someone came out in their underwear, <laughs> which I think is also to be expected if you're knocking on people's doors at 7.30, like <laughs> inevitably, right? And it, and it was just inter- interesting because, you know, we're, we're Jesus's people. We are the church. And so people are responding to Jesus. And it's just interesting to see the, the wide variety of how people responded. So let's ask this. How, how are we responding? First off, uh, okay, we're going to work back up through the text. Okay, so we worked through it one way. Now we're going to work back the other way. Uh, th- we see the religious spirit. And this is, this is what we see here uh, in verses 32 through 34. Jesus heals this demon-oppressed man. The Pharisees' response is he casts out demons by the prince of demons, which again we'll see in Matthew chapter 12. Okay. But here, here's, here's what the religious spirit is. The religious spirit is the response to Jesus that always labors to find fault. It labors to find fault either in Jesus or Jesus' people. And, and here's how it works. It's always just trying to point out what's wrong or what's not good enough or how you should somehow be doing something better. It's kind of this idea of clean this up first and then we'll talk. Jesus never operates like that though. Right? The, the woman comes to Jesus and he doesn't say, oh, go get yourself clean first and then we'll talk. He doesn't, he doesn't, he doesn't tell Jairus, oh no, your daughter is, is dead. I'm sorry, she's unclean. I can't do this. Right? Jesus never operates that way. But religious people always work to find fault, and they always work to get people to clean up their act in in their perspective first. And so it's it's more than anything, it's do this my way, because my way is the right way, and then we can maybe be friends. Uh, Here's here's a couple of examples how this might work itself out. So we, uh, you know, social media, I love social media. Um, on most of our social media feeds, like Twitter or Instagram, we have like little bios, right? They're, uh, little biographies. And, and pastors, I follow a bunch of pastors, and they're, you know, they kind of have these bullet points of like pastor and husband and father and so on and so forth. You know, pastor, husband, father. Well, here, here's what the religious spirit does. It says, you put pastor first. 
you, how dare you? Don't you know that you're, you're first a husband and then a father and then a pastor? That's how the religious spirit works itself out. Or, or, it's, or it's this, you know, so a, a lot of us have different traditions that we grew up in. Right? And, and in Tapper, we've had many people come in with various traditions. Well, a couple years ago, we, had, we started doing catechisms uh, on Sunday mornings. We started working through the New City Catechism together and the Apostles' Creed, which we're going to start doing again in 2022. So y'all can just start settling that in your hearts now, okay? <laughs> that is coming. Um, I remember when we started doing that, one person came up to me and he was very frustrated and he just couldn't understand, why are we doing these tradition things? Why are we doing catechisms? Why are we, why are we saying the Apostles' Creed? That's all, that's Catholic, that's traditional, we don't need to do it. And his response to me was, what are we going to do next? Repeat the Lord's Prayer? <laughs> yes, which I, to which I was like, and here's what was interesting about it. Is he said, we don't, need, we don't need catechisms. We don't need creeds. We need scripture. We need the Bible. Are we going to start repeating the Lord's Prayer together? Yeah. Because guess what? It's in the Bible. <laughs> like, but, but, here, here, but this is what the religious spirit does. It wants to work to criticize and to find fault in areas where it's not necessary to find fault. Right? And, and, it's, and it's, not, it's not judged usually by anything other than my own personal opinion. It, it, it leaves, I'm, I'm personally offended and so I want you to get right in accord to my ways or my eyes. And so the encouragement for us would obviously be not to respond with the religious spirit, but to respond as Jesus responds. Jesus is undeterred by any sort of societal definitions or classes. Jesus doesn't care if you're a woman or a man. Jesus doesn't care if you are clean or unclean. Jesus doesn't care if you're a tax collector or a pastor. Like, whatever ways that we use to categorize things, Jesus breaks those walls down. Right? And, and, and the spirit of Jesus is, well, he just spends time with people. Like he's, he's just present with people. Jesus himself marvels at people's faith. Right? Jesus just, he takes the time to be with people. The second, the second response that we see is, is in the blind men. It's this flattering but disobedient. And I think this is how a lot of discipleship works in our day. I think there's a lot of us, and when I say that, I mean myself included, who we know how to flatter. We know how to use good Christianese. We know how to say the right things about Jesus. Lord Jesus, Son of David, you're the Messiah. You're the Lord. But then 
we are prone to disobey the clear teachings of Jesus, which in turn is an incomplete picture of discipleship. And this is how the blind men respond, and that's seen specifically in their disobedience to Jesus' stern warning to not talk about him. They're willing and able to speak honorably about Jesus, but what we have to understand is that experiences don't always equate to actual discipleship. And that's important because I think often we, we think, well, if, if people just have a, more of an experience, then they would obey. And that's not how it works. Here's how Bruner puts this. He says, quote, not even Jesus believes his grace is all that is needed for correct behavior, as his explicit warning here shows. And if his warning is not enough, their disobedient behavior should now convince us that while grace and faith can heal us, they do not instantly or spontaneously sanctify us or make us wonderful people or obedient disciples. Now listen to this. Matthew's gospel works especially hard to teach the church that obedience to the commanding ministry of Jesus is perpetually necessary if we are to be true Christians. Which, this is exactly what Jesus worked out in the Sermon on the Mount. But like, he, he brought us to the conclusion in Matthew 7 that those who are building their house on the rock, on solid foundation, are those who hear and obey the teachings of Jesus. That's what I tell my kids every single day. Listen and obey. Because I know that to just tell them to listen doesn't equate to obedience. And, and we know that too. Come on, how many? We, we, hear, we hear the words of Jesus. We hear. Obedience, that's a bit more challenging. But this is, this is what a full picture of discipleship to Jesus looks like. It looks like actually obeying him. Right? He's, he's Lord, he's king. And so that would be the expectation. And so what we see here is that faith is not passive or merely intellectual belief, but rather it's multifaceted and complex. I've uh, been reading a really good book called uh, Salvation by Allegiance Alone, and he, he, he details the process of faith, and he puts it like this. Number one, it's intellectual agreement with the gospel. So that, that's absolutely a part of it. It's an agreement with the gospel that, that we believe that Jesus entered into human history, uh, that he is the son of David, uh, that he lived a sinless life, that he was crucified, died, and rose from the grave, that he ascended to his throne, and he will one day come again to judge. That's a complete picture of the gospel. It involves an intellectual understanding. But, that, but it moves from there, and it goes, secondly, to a confession of loyalty. That Jesus is Lord. And when we declare that Jesus is Lord, the expectation is loyalty. It's allegiance. It's, it's obedience in every way. And then third, it carries itself out in embodied fidelity. In other words, our, it's our lives, our bodies, being shaped more like Christ. And you can see this carry itself out throughout the entirety of the New Testament. 
why Paul can say things like, follow me as I am of Christ. There's an embodied fidelity that Paul has to Jesus that he expects to be imitated. And understand that none of this negates the cross. None of this negates the finished work of Jesus. This is just the realistic response to our king. The point being this. Jesus will not be flattered by our niceties. Our loyalty to him is expressed in our obedience. The third response then is this. It's being undaunted in the face of death. And so, of course, circling back here to Jairus and the woman, again, both facing death. Now, Jairus, of course, is facing literal death. His daughter has died. The woman, in every way, has experienced death in her society. She, she is dead to the world. She can't be with anyone. She, there's just nothing that she can do. She is to the point of desperation and absolute like hopelessness. Something drastic has to happen. And so she is socially dead. Right? Yet Jesus enters in and Jesus heals. Okay? Now here's, here's what uh, Bruner actually, he quotes um, another commentator in regards to what Jesus says here about the girl not being dead but sleeping. Okay, so that's verse 24. He said, go away for the girl is not dead but sleeping. And they laughed at him. Here's what, here's what he says. He says, quote, if Jesus says that the little girl sleeps, it is not because he believes she is still living nor that death is just asleep for him. He means that God, by Jesus' ministry, is going to show that death is not the absolutely irreparable thing of which men are so frightened. Right? Jesus is declaring an outright victory over that which frightens us most. Right? And it's, an, it's, it's such a... It's such a tension, right? We, we've already, I think we sang it this morning already, uh, like, death, where is your sting? Yet if we've experienced death, we know, oh, it's there. And so to, to proclaim, oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Is not to be naive, right? but to be hopeful, Why? Because Jesus conquered death. Like, like Jesus conquers death. Like I said at the beginning, like only because of Jesus can we proclaim so-and-so is dead, but. Right? Like we are able to add that to the end because what Jesus does is he steps into the world of the unclean. He steps into the world of the impure. He steps into the world of the dead and he pulls us out of it. And so the, the good news for us is that he who knew no sin became sin so that in him 
we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus conquers death. And yes, this is laughable. I love the response of the, of the mourners. They laugh. Because that's what you do when you say a dead person got raised from the dead. You laugh. But this is the reality for us as followers of Jesus. Because if it's not, we don't have hope. If, if not, as Paul says, we are of most all people most to be pitied. We're, we're like, this is foolish. If Jesus is not risen from the dead, we should be home in our PJs eating pancakes. But he's risen. And not only has he risen, but he has ascended. He's Lord and King. So how are we responding to Jesus? How are you responding to Jesus? The expectation is, is a, a joyful, expectant bending of the knee to him. Just as we see here with Jairus just as we see here with the woman, right? and that we would worship and obey him as our, our Lord and King with an expectant hope of his one day return where <laughs> all of this is put to an end, where all the dead are raised to life in Christ. Right? Like death has no power over us as followers of Jesus where the blind are given sight and where the mute are able to speak. So we will one day meet our king face to face. We will live with him for eternity. We will see him and we will worship him. Amen? Let's pray. Jesus, thank you that you are the one who conquers death. Thank you, Jesus, that you conquer blindness Thank you, Jesus, that you enable those who have no voice to have a voice, and that every last bit of that is for your glory and your fame. Lord Jesus, you are, you are, your Lord and King. We thank you for the work that you accomplished on earth over 2,000 years ago. We thank you that you are ruling and reigning now, and I pray that we would, that we would bend our knees to you that we would worship you, that we would obey you, that there would be just joy and satisfaction in living our lives in allegiance to you. So Jesus, we praise you for your victory this morning. Thank you for this good news. Thank you, Jesus, that you call us to yourself. May there just be rejoicing and celebration and hope in light of this reality. It's in your good name that we pray. Amen.